Hello and welcome to PA Podcast number 25. This week's guest is Michael Grady, Senior Economist and Strategist at Aviva Investors. We chatted about everything from finding the signal amid all the trumped-up noise to post-crisis institutional memory and why currencies will likely remain key. It's been an interesting start to 2017, shall we say. Trump has been interesting uh, as, a, as a political force. How, as an asset allocator, as a strategist, how do you go about navigating the level of political noise at the moment within markets? Uh, look, there's no doubt it's um, a challenging time. Um, although I'd have to say, uh, as long as I've been involved uh, in uh, this kind of a role, um, it sort of feels like we've always been in challenging times for um, uh, strategy and, and asset allocation type decisions. Um, but the, you know, the political noise um, that is coming out of the, the US um, and elsewhere, you know, you can add um, Britain into that, I guess, to some extent as well, um, does make it more challenging. Um, the way um, I like to think about it is to, as much as I can, try and step back from that noise um, and focus on um, what are the fundamental drivers of the markets um, that we're looking at, key macro markets that we look at. Um, and so that's you know thinking about you know where are these markets in terms of um, you know long-term valuations, in terms of um, uh, the economic position of different economies, uh, cyclical position, um, and how should that be influencing uh, different asset markets. And then, as you say, the, the policy element, which you know, for really all of the post-global financial crisis period has been so uh, crucial to um, understanding how asset markets globally have uh, responded uh, to events. And, you know, it's it's trying on that specific area of economic policy, um, trying to really identify um, you know, where things are likely to head from here. And that's, that's of course, challenging, um, particularly with uh, somebody uh, like Donald Trump, who um, you know, has spoken um, you know, uh, in different ways about the same topic. So it makes it quite difficult. Um, <laughs> it's a very diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, Mick, I mean, just looking at that, I mean, talking about the, the post-2008 crisis, we're increasingly getting to a point now where a large part of the industry has been in only since then. So that, you know, the, the institutional memory of, of pre-2008 is obviously going to wane over time and, and we're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. But but is there a sense that, that as we kind of go along that, that route, the comfort level with which people are, are sort of managing money and, and sort of navigating markets, the, the comfort level they have with policy intervention at the scale with which we've become used to since 2008, do you think that changes how you think about asset markets? I think it does to some extent. I mean, um, you know, I've been around long enough to have seen uh, perhaps a few more of the ups and downs um, than, than some of uh, some of the industry who are a bit younger. Um, and, you know, uh, thinking back to sort of the end of last year, November, December, uh, the move we saw um, higher in uh, US uh, yields, global yields generally. And, um, you know, it didn't, not the, it didn't spark panic, but, you know, um, 
the, the reaction I saw from, from some uh, was that this was um, sort of unprecedented and um, you know, could be um, really quite disturbing. And uh, the reality is you look back over any reasonable um, length of history and you know, it's just a blip on the chart. It's, you can barely see it. And so that's not to underplay it too much because it was an important um, development in markets that happened towards the end of uh, last year. But I think you're right in that there's a, an underappreciation, under perhaps, of um, what's a normal level of volatility. Volatility has in global markets has really been suppressed um, since the financial crisis uh, by policy measures, by largely by quantitative easing type measures uh, from central banks around the world. And that was that was part of their intention uh, was to was to reduce volatility, and it was it was pretty effective with the exception of you know, a few episodes um, focused around Europe and so on. But um, you know, I think we are potentially moving back slowly. It's been a very long grind. You know, it's, 2008 is now a long time ago. Um, but we're, I think, slowly moving back to uh, a world where levels of volatility will be more like what they were you know, in the early 2000s. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think uh, as uh, investors and asset allocators, we have to um, think about that when we're thinking about, you know, how to size positions and things like that. Mm. Uh, does it change the nature of, of the, the structural tactical allocation uh, d- debate, the, or I mean the, the strategic and, and tactical allocation debate? Because clearly uh, I was talking to, to somebody the other day and, and they'd removed, long, uh, you know, long-term government bonds from their strategic allocation Entirely for the first time, mm-hmm. and we're saying, well, we're happy to we're happy to have it now on a tactical basis at, at a twelve month view or something like that. But mm-hmm. we're not actually willing to have it on a strategic level anymore because of where valuations have got to over thirty years. How, how do you think about those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that um, it's right now uh, a more challenging moment to be um, uh, just to be sort of closing your eyes if you like and, and buying um, or having a large allocation um, uh, to uh, government bond yields. I mean um, you know it's a question I think of being a little bit more selective um, looking at different markets. Um, there are possibly some markets who in a more reflationary world um, are likely to have stronger uh, currencies um, and therefore maybe their bond markets will be a little bit more insulated um, because of the, the sort of deflationary effects of the strong currencies. So places like Australia might be an example of that uh, or New Zealand. Um, and so, you know, it's being about being a bit more selective about which, um, which markets you're looking at. Uh, of course, there's, you know, limits to how, how much Australian debt you can hold. Um, it's not that big a market. But... Um, you know, I, I guess the what I would bring it back to, and, and um, the the Ames Fund that I'm most uh, directly involved with, um, if you like, steps back from that traditional long-only asset allocation process and tries to think about um, the world in in absolute return space, and that allows us the flexibility to. Um, be either long, neutral, or, sh- or indeed short um, duration. Um, and you know, at this moment in time, um, we're pretty neutral on duration. But um, you know, that's masks, if you like, um, some short positions that offset some long positions. So short positions uh, in the U.S. and long positions in uh, some emerging markets. What What about 
So the big question for a lot of allocators at the moment is, is how one constructs a portfolio for a defensive client and, and navigating that conversation around, well, we can get you the level of return that you've become accustomed to, but it would be at a higher level of risk than perhaps you're willing to take. And if you aren't actually willing to take any risk, chances are you might not be able to get a return. And that's obviously in very stark and black and white terms. But, but how are you think or how are you going about allocating for those kinds of clients? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, there is, um, there has to be a realisation that um, whilst, uh, you know, yields have obviously backed up a bit um, over recent um, months, that it's unlikely that we're going back to a world where, you know, global bond yields are up in the sort of high six, seven, eight, nine type numbers that we experienced back in the, um, the 90s and early 2000s. And, you know, that, in a sense, is a reflection of um, a lot of things to do with, you know, longer run growth expectations and productivity and things like that, all of which relate to what should your expected return over the longer run be today compared to, say, what it was um, 10, 20 years ago. And, you know, the reality is it probably ought to be a bit lower than what it was 10 or 20 years ago. Is there a sense of what that should be now? Uh, Well, I think it's... It's, it's, it's a really difficult question. So you, um, if you think about <clears throat> what, what you might think of as the neutral um, rate of interest um, looking forward over the next five years, let's say. Uh, so the Fed think that that's around 3%. And that's materially lower than, um, than what they thought 10, 15 years ago. Um, and you know, it's off that rate, if you like, that you should think about returns more generally. Um, and as you say, there's, there's always a trade-off then between how much risk you want, to, um, you want to have in the portfolio relative to that risk-free return. Um, and, uh, you know, that comes down to, as I say, um, having, uh, I think, the flexibility of mandate um, to be able to uh, look across, you know, a broad spectrum of markets and a broad sec- spectrum of asset classes. Mm. In terms of the... The, the shifts that we're seeing now, uh, I mean, obviously, there was a lot of talk at the end of 2015 about policy divergence because we saw uh, the U.S. finally raising rates and, and the expectation then that they would you know, do a few more increases over the course of 2016. It turned out that they did another one in December. And, and, and the expectation, again, is that they will do more this year. Are, are you expecting them to actually do more this year? Is there any sense of, of what that's likely to be? And, and how does that, that play into the, that policy divergence theme? Uh, yes, we are. So we, um, in our in our house view, we expect um, to see them deliver on three rate hikes this year, which is um, their own central expectation. Um, I think where we are, for, for all the sort of uncertainty around um, Trump and so on, where we are today relative to this time a year ago in terms of the position of the US economy and indeed the global economy is quite different. Um, you know, I can remember um, having many conversations with uh, people around this time last year about whether or not the US was heading into recession. Um, now, uh, at the time, I thought those concerns were overdone, and I think, you know, um, with the fullness of time, that, that turned out to be the case. But, but at the time, markets were very concerned about that prospect. Uh, and you saw what happened in the first half uh, of last year as a result. And, you know, I think the Fed last year, whilst they started the year saying, you know, four Fed, four hikes, 
pretty rapidly reversed uh, that position uh, on a on a series of concerns around, uh, I would say, largely external risks uh, alongside that um, sort of small uh, possibility that the US itself was uh, heading into choppier waters. I think if you roll the clock forward to where we are today, the US economy is on an even stronger footing now than what it was uh, back then. Unemployment's continued to fall. Um, uh, growth is, if anything, picking up. Um, and if you look around globally uh, at some of the cons key concerns um, that were around uh, this time last year, one of those was on China and the extent to which um, there was going to be, if you like, a harder landing there um, than, uh, than perhaps uh, had been expected um, and the, ex the ability of the Chinese authorities essentially to manage that. Um, and again, with the fullness of time, um, 2016 ended up being a relatively smooth year uh, for China, uh, and Chinese growth actually also accelerated a little bit into the end of the year. Um, and that's, a, that's a, a story that you've seen across um, emerging markets and developed markets worldwide, which is that uh, activities actually picked up into the back end of 2016. So I, I do think we are in a different position um, uh, cyclically uh, than what we were this time last year. Uh, I think the US economy is in a, in a better position, the labour market's tighter, and I think crucially what we've started to see come through and be delivered is higher inflation. Um, again, I think this time last year, um, as, it, as it had been the case really for much of the preceding two or three years, the market was very preoccupied with deflationary or disinflationary risks. Um, and you could see that in the way in which particularly sort of short dated fixed income assets were priced. Um, that started shifting towards about the middle to latter half of last year, before, you know, before Trump was elected, that started shifting. Um, and on the back of the Trump election, uh, who you know we haven't talked much about his policies yet, but you know who has a very potentially very stimulatory policy platform, alongside the fact that we've seen inflation picking up, um, I think that just puts the Fed in a different place to be able to deliver on those hikes this year. It's interesting you say that because I think there's been there's been all manner of talk about the Trump rally and and the the a lot of focus has been on what's happened since he was elected, but but as you say, I think that that reflation trade that that expectations and, and the uptick in inflation began quite a lot. Or a couple of months before he actually came to to power, the the, the question I suppose is is, is twofold. Is, is one, is there not a danger that too much positivity has been placed on the the, the benefits of the the positive sides of Trump's policies, and and a, the market has run fairly fairly strongly since he came to power. Uh, how? How much further do you think this so-called Trump rally has to go and how much of it is based on him and how much of it is based on, on what was happening before he came in? Uh, so this is a topic that uh, we debate almost every day in the office and you know, it's, uh, it's obviously um, important in thinking about how markets are likely to evolve over the course of the next six to 12 months uh, at the very least. I mean, I think if you... If you look at the way in which um, markets were already moving in the lead up to the US election, as I say, we'd already started to see a movement in this direction in terms of 
Um, you know, bond yields were already picking up. Inflation break-evens were already rising. Um, equity markets were were rising. All that was happening. It just wasn't happening very quickly. Um, it was a kind of a steady movement. So that was sort of through September, October, and then into November of, of last year. Um, I would say in lots of those cases, um, particularly uh, on the rate side, that steady movement back was actually part of a normalisation um, away from a mispricing. Essentially, the, the market had overpriced or overweighted the deflationary w- risks in the world. And you know, we've been talking at, uh, at Aviva Investors about that you know, as, as early as um, sort of the middle of, of last year or even slightly earlier than that. And so, you know, that initial, if you like, repricing um, had little to do with Trump at all. Um, what we saw when he was elected is, you know, here is somebody who's come in with um, a policy platform that's um, not always easy to decipher, um, but at the very least seems to... Um, be like very likely to contain um, a pretty strong fiscal stimulus in the initial years through a combination of tax cuts and um, uh, some modest, I would say, increase in um, in spending on infrastructure and defence. Um, it's perfectly reasonable for the market to, assuming those things are delivered, um, to respond to that. Um, the question is, did it? Has it over-responded or not? Um, I think, you know, I mean, the easier get out of that is, of course, time will tell. But um, where I am at the moment on it is that since since his inauguration, or during January and since the inauguration, um, we've heard a lot of a lot more noise uh, around his policy stuff, and particularly, I guess, more noise about some of those things that are in his platform that are less favourable to growth and the markets around you know, increased protection mm. and things like that. Now, again, nothing's particularly been delivered on that as yet, so we don't know um, how far he's going to go in that direction, but it's clearly a risk. Um, and to some extent, we've seen markets cool a bit in recent weeks as I think perhaps that risk has become a bit more in the forefront of their minds. Not very much. Again, I wouldn't want to overplay how much markets have kind of cooled, but if you like, some of the momentum out of that initial rally has, has faded away. Uh, and I guess the, where it's most obviously seen is the US dollar has actually weakened off uh, a reasonable amount in the last six weeks. So for me, it's the next thing I'm looking for um, is the White House will have to put out um, their budget proposal. And they'll probably do that in the next month or so. Um, and that will give us the first concrete look at what the um, tax and spend policies actually are. And I think if those, if those policies are spelled out to be essentially consistent with what had been said running into the election by his team uh, and also broadly consistent, therefore, with uh, the Republican Congress, then, you know, I think, again, it will refocus minds on the fact that this is an economy that's already in cyclically a strong position um, that's about to get an injection of growth um, coming from, uh, from from sort of a fiscal reorientation. Um, and that should be, um, well, both growth positive, but also particularly inflationary. 
Mm. What is that? And we haven't really touched on the currency at all. You may, uh, currencies at all, really. And, and what does that mean for the dollar? And what does that mean then for emerging markets? So the dollar, another one that um, is hotly debated. Um, so, so my view on this one has been that the factors that are there to support a stronger dollar are um, one of a fiscal stance that would tend to support the dollar, two, a likely increasing divergence in monetary policy, which should also support the dollar. On the other side of, and you know, there's some details amongst each of those which I could go into, but um, they're kind of the two, two kind of main things. And then on the other side uh, of the fence, you have um, people who would point to, but you know, if you look at the dollar on a valuation basis, lots of different ways of valuing currencies, um, uh, you know, it looks expensive, you know, um, and it tends to be the case that expensive currencies don't stay expensive forever or get a lot more expensive. They tend to, tend to cheapen. So that's the kind of the other side of the argument. I personally still put in more weight on the first side of the argument. I think you can get quite long protracted deviations from, from those kind of valuation type metrics. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I wouldn't see the dollar moving another probably you know, 10, 10, 20% from here. I think it's just surprises, it provides a support um, for the dollar going forward. Um, that can be challenging for emerging markets, although I think in a world where the dollar is supported but not roaring away is, is, is okay for the emerging markets. Yes, um, certain ones have you know, large dollar debt, um, particularly in the corporate sector, but also some, to some extent also in, in, on the um, public side. Um, but I think only in an environment where, where you're seeing the dollar moving away sort of aggressively does that become uh, a more serious problem. Um, we saw some sign of that, of course, back in November last year, um, where uh, many emerging market currencies fell very sharply immediately after uh, the election. Um, many of those have since retraced quite a lot of that move um, uh, as things have kind of settled down somewhat. So there is, I still think, the potential for getting that um, high volatility, one-off, sharp moves in emerging market currencies um, on you know, particular pieces of news that might come, come about. Um, but that's not the same, saying, same as saying they're kind of on a sort of long-term structural decline. So, you know, we're still, you know, reasonably positive uh, on the emerging markets. Um, but, you know, as I say, this is a, a topic that's very much up, up for debate. If you look across the, the G10 economies, um, uh, so if you take the euro or, or sterling, um, I think it's, it's just as important when thinking about um, those currencies against the dollar to think about what's going on in those economies um, as it is what's going on in the US. It's very easy to spend all your time thinking about Donald Trump and all of his, well, his policy Well, he is ways. interesting to watch, um, if nothing else. Uh, but, you know, of course, there's an awful lot of important things going on in, in those other economies that um, uh, are going to be very important for the currencies as well when looking at those against the dollar. So, you know, in the euro area, we've seen activity, you know, um, come out, you know, probably a little bit better than expected. Um, we've seen inflation started, starting to pick up again a little faster than expected. Um, our central expectation is that um, the ECB remains essentially with the policy they have at the moment of QE through to the end of this year. We don't 
see an early taper as being a likely outcome. Uh, but you know the balance of risks are probably tilted in that direction, and you know that may favour you thinking you know the euro um, balance of risks could be a little higher from here. But you know, as I say, um, that's not our central case, but that may be where you see the balance of risk. Sterling, of course, is a, another one where there's a very specific thing going on, uh, which uh, everyone will be very well aware of uh, around Brexit. And you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to how those negotiations are going to play out over the next two years. Well, that's it from this week's edition of the PA Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did or you have any ideas on who you'd like to hear on the podcast, let us know. Hashtag PA Podcast on Twitter.